Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, welcome to the Blonde Files podcast. I'm your host, Arielle Laurie, and I'm here to talk all things wellness. From how to achieve optimal health and well-being to the best beauty tips and everything in between, no topic is off limits, and I'm bringing it to you real and unfiltered. I know there is so much information out there, so I'm here to help you navigate it all. Thanks for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is such a special episode for a few reasons. One, it is my 50th episode. Two, it's my first episode with Dear Media. And three, most importantly, my guest is my husband. So for anyone who has followed me for a while, they know he is intensely private. So why he decided to do this and how I got him to open up as much as he did, I will never know. Maybe boredom. It's probably the first time in like 35 years that he hasn't worked in a week. But he is so freaking smart. He has so much wisdom to impart. He is so funny and charming. The whole time we were recording, I fell in love with him a little more. And I think you will too. We talk a lot about failure and success how he got to where he is today, how to keep pushing when you feel like giving up and the biggest lessons that he's learned in life. And then we also get personal and talk about what we were drawn to with one another, what he loves about me, what irritates him about me and some of our, well, differences. Anyway, my guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Chuck Lorre is the creator of hit shows going back probably before a lot of us were born, including Grace Under Fire, Sybil, Dharma and Greg, Two and a Half Men, Mike and Molly, Mom, Young Sheldon, The Big Bang Theory, Golden Globe winning The Kaminsky Method, Bob Hart's Abby Shola, and lots of other projects in the works. His philanthropic ventures include the Big Bang Theory Scholarship and the Chuck Lorre Family Foundation. And personally, he's my husband and overall, he is just a total boss. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so I am here with the one, the only, king of sitcoms, king of my heart, (laughs) Harvey's dad, Hmm. Mr. Chuck Lorre. It's kind of crazy because when this episode is released, it will be exactly one year since I launched the podcast. You are the guest that everybody keeps asking to have on, and here you are. Here I am. 
in your house. Yeah. <laughs> Our house. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here in my house. <laughs> <laughs> this is going really well so far. Yeah. Um, I had listeners send in questions on Instagram, so we're going to get to as many of those as we can today. Chuck is feeling a little bit under the weather, so we're going to... I have mesothelioma. <laughs> okay. Um, so we are going to get through as many as we can. But to start, I would love to have you tell the audience a little bit about you, for those who don't already know. And I would love if you could tell a little bit of, of your story of how you got into TV, because a lot of my listeners are just starting out their careers or they're wanting to make career changes and... I think your story is so inspirational. So Wow, how do I boil that down? It's it's a belabored story. I was a musician for 17 years and uh it wasn't quite making it when I had uh young children in order to support them. And um I I had gotten a sense that uh, there was a better living to be had writing TV scripts, which I I arrogantly and naively thought I could do. And um, I got my first break. I, I was not only I was working evenings in clubs and parties as as a as a guitar player, and during the day I was doing door to door sales. And one of the doors I walked into was a small animation company called DIC. It was about twenty twenty five people, and I convinced them to give me a chance to write scripts for them. And um, and they ultimately did. I pestered them until they gave me a, a shot to write scripts. And I, I worked in animation for several years as a result of that. And it was better than playing bar mitzvahs in Tarzana, a much better uh, source of income. And, um, and then I got wind that if you wrote for real people as opposed to animated characters in television, for instance, there was a thing called the Writers Guild. And um, the Writers Guild offered something I really, really wanted, which was health insurance. So every time one of my kids had an earache or, you know, anything, sniffly nose or anything that required a doctor, it was ruinous financially. So I wanted to get into an organization that had health insurance. So I started writing what were called spec scripts in order to try and convince somebody to give me a chance to write in prime time. And one of the scripts I wrote was a Golden Girls around 1985-86. And I thought it was going to get me onto Golden Girls because I got it to Betty White, who really liked it. And I didn't understand at the time, uh, but I'm sure what happened was Ms. White took it to the producers of Golden Girls and they promptly set it on fire, uh, not wanting their actors to come in with scripts from the outside. Uh, so the script went nowhere there, but it did ultimately get me a job on another sitcom. Um, first as a freelance writer, and then as a staff writer. And then around 1990, my big break was getting on Roseanne, which was the number one show in the country. I did that for a couple of years, and then I got a shot to create my own shows around 93. And there it is. Did you get any advice at that time that helped you or did you just have the motivation coming from within and for your kids and your family? Yeah, I'm watching television. Um, I saw where the bar was in terms of what constituted quality and what constituted mediocrity. And I very arrogantly thought I could jump over that bar. 
I just did, you know. And prior to that time, the bar that I had to jump over was made up of Paul McCartney and John Lennon and Stevie Wonder and Bruce Springsteen. That's a little high. Much higher, <laughs> much higher. And, I, and I, I understood at the time, much to my dismay, that that was a bar I could not cross. That, that was, that was a, a level of excellence and, and art, artistry that I, I just simply didn't have as much as I wanted that to be my career. I was too far away in terms of the kind of excellence that... Um, I think there's an innate element to some of that stuff, but whatever it was, it wasn't in me. Uh, whereas I thought maybe I could write for the Golden Girls, which uh, I never did. But um, one that, of one of the questions that I got was asking if you could make a Golden Girls remake, but having it follow their daughters. It'd be their granddaughters at this point. Granddaughters, yeah, yeah <laughs> it certainly could. They should take that request to. Uh, Susan Harris, she created the show. That would be her call to do that. Okay. Brilliant writer. She also created Soap. So does the creative process come naturally or is it something you have to work on? Oh, it's very much something you work on. It requires discipline. It requires grinding out endless reams of bad material to get to the good stuff. I once heard a wonderful line that uh, I really like. And I, the line is... Uh, if you don't stay in your chair, the muse doesn't know where to find you. <laughs> and staying in the chair is hard because it's frustrating. So how do you do it? You stay in the chair. That's like what you told me. I think somebody asked me to ask you what the best piece of advice you ever got was. And I'd like to hear that. But something that you told me that was so helpful is kind of along those lines. Like when I was having a hard time and feeling like I was getting doors shut in my face and I, I couldn't. I just felt like I didn't see how to move forward. You said that the difference between people who make it and the people who don't are the people who don't give up. So that's essentially similar. There comes a time when you want to run screaming from the room or from wherever it is you are because the frustration has reached a point where it's just, it's, uh, it's just intolerable. And that's the place where you have to stay and, and sit in that discomfort and that unease and uh and sometimes shortly after that peaks comes something of of consequence something perhaps worth pursuing and you also told me that success isn't just a straight line up it's not linear it plateaus and it dips and then it plateaus again and then maybe it goes up and then it goes down success is in a place it's not a it's not a result you're so smart <laughs> 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 it's an action it's a verb it's a movement it's not a noun mm. yeah. it's a doingness do you coach um i'm looking for a coach you're looking for a coach <laughs> I don't, see I, I i don't know that you're teachable <laughs> oh okay well let's get into some of those questions All right. <laughs> no we'll get there um okay how do you get out of a creative rut well, it's the same question, the same answer. Okay. You stick with it. You you don't quit. Okay. How do you manage stress when you're working long days and hours? I think just the recognition that it will pass. And yeah, again, it's tolerating discomfort is, uh, I think, is the, the, the best way I can sum up the creative process is being willing to tolerate being uncomfortable, being unhappy, being frustrated, being just absolutely angry and 
furious with yourself or with others and uh, and not acting on those feelings and pursuing whatever it is you're trying to do. How do you ignite your creativity? Again, there's no fuse that gets lit. You go to work. You pursue an idea and and you and uh, and if you think it has value, then you do it and you write it. Uh, you chase it. You try and get it made. Um, if you believe in it, then um, all you could do is is again is take the actions that uh, are required to to make it a reality. It's not. Uh, there's no ignition. Hmm. I think there are there are inherently some instincts that kick in, like. And it's generally, I've come to understand that it is a quiet, a quiet response, an internally quiet response that, that what you're doing has value. Like as opposed to urgency oh boy, or this is, frenetic? Yeah. If, I, if I'm jumping up and down going, this is the greatest thing ever, I'm doomed. Mm-hmm. I, I know that I'm, 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 I'm chasing something off a cliff. But the quiet response, that feeling that, uh, that is not loud and, and, um, and obsessed, that something has value. Uh, that's the one worth pursuing, I find. Did anyone ever tell you that you have a great voice for radio? No. Podcasting? You remember FM? You don't remember FM radio, do you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I grew up listening to FM radio. I do too. And uh, the, the guys that... I'm an old millennial. You're an old millennial. <laughs> the guys that I loved were like, uh, there was a guy named Roscoe in New York who... Uh, he was down here. He was way down here, <laughs> you know. And uh, Allison Steele, the night bird, would always start her uh, show with uh, "Nights in White Satin." It was really, it was precious. But their voices were magnificent. Jonathan yeah. Schwartz in the afternoon. Your older listeners, yeah, that you're say, nine I older. About two percent of my yeah, audience is going to know. Oh, New York <laughs> FM radio in the '60s. Next. Yes, that's what we want to talk about. <laughs> Everyone wants to know the moment that you knew I was the one. I think we discussed this. I, you told me. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you were pretty clear about it, uh, that, uh, that I need look no further. So I took you at your word. <laughs> I need more details. Oh, you need How more How did I detail? do that? Uh, I made the first move. Yes, you did. And uh, I was just uh, very pleased to be pursued. <laughs> it uh, made me feel special. <laughs> Well, you never would have. I knew that. No, because as we've discussed, there was a little bit of an age difference. Oh, we're going to call it a little bit, huh? <laughs> All right. There was well, a joke in the in in the Kaminsky method in the second season where uh, there's a discussion of a May December relationship. Yeah, I remember that one. And uh, Paul Reiser says, uh, "Well, he's closer to Thanksgiving." <laughs> and uh, Alan Arkin goes, no, I, I don't see you. No, you're closer to Christmas, maybe New Year's or something like that. But it was very much deep December. Where'd you get that from? I made it up. <laughs> Do you eat similarly to me? Oh my goodness, no. <laughs> no, if I ate similar to you, then I would I would absolutely look like a salmon <laughs> because that seems to be all you eat. I feel like I've gotten a lot better with it. I feel like now I do about two days a week as opposed to twice a day, six days a week. Yeah, if there's a salmon shortage, I can point your listeners to who's responsible. (laughs) What made you fall for me? Well, at first glance, you're a very beautiful woman. But beyond that, you're crazy smart. 
unnervingly smart. And uh, I found that attractive. I found that very, very sexy and, uh, and intriguing. I feel like people who don't know you or, or know me look at it and assume that I'm a trophy wife or... Well, you are. <laughs> you no, are. but you... Maybe more of a medallion. I think people don't think about it any further. You're an, ex- you're an incredibly intelligent person and you wouldn't be able to be in a relationship with somebody who didn't bring anything to the table. Not to toot my own horn, but That's like they your, don't give you credit. That was your horn. Well, but they... You know what I mean. Yes, I do. To be with a woman who, who is uh, just simply pretty or beautiful or whatever word you choose would not suffice. Would, it does, is, not, uh, is not something for a long-term relationship. No, nope. Can't happen. When did you know you wanted to marry me? I think after we came back from our trip to Vietnam. Well, because when we got married, you said it was the first date. I might have entertained it. I may have entertained it after the first date. Yeah. We knew pretty early on, but I feel like Mm -hmm. traveling with somebody Mm -hmm. tells you a lot about them. You remember we were riding bicycles around Vietnam while I was hemorrhaging from my thumb. (laughs) (laughs) That's a story we won't get into. No. (laughs) Chuck took a little spill the night before we went to Vietnam and jammed his thumb in something. It's my fault. I left, I left a suitcase in the middle of the room. <laughs> this is four months into dating, mind you. That was pretty bold of us. But it I t- guess it's better, like, just get it out of the way. If it wasn't going to go well, we would have found out quickly, probably somewhere between Hanoi and Da Nang. <laughs> that would have been uncomfortable. Yes, the second Vietnam War. <laughs> How does it feel to be married to a highly successful and motivated wellness blogger? Oh, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's always fun to find out (laughs) things about gut health that I didn't want to know. Okay. Let's switch gears here. Who is your hero? Who is my hero? Mm -hmm. My father. Somebody asked if you could have lunch with anybody dead or alive, who would it be? Would it be your father? It's a little... You know, and when you get into those kind of hypotheticals, that's a little like the monkey's paw. That's a Twilight Zone episode. Okay. To bring back a deceased relative, I, I, I would avoid that as an answer. <laughs> I think I'd rather go for the historical approach. Okay, so who would it be? Who would it be? Wow. Well, since it's wreaked so much change and havoc on the Western world, I'd be I'd be interested to sit down and have a conversation with. Uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. That would be interesting. Is assuming that I spoke Aramaic or whatever was the language at the time, or we had a translator. You know, just to get the straight scoop for something say, that changed the world. It would clear up a lot. Yeah, I just just to make sure that you know he wasn't misunderstood or anybody mistranslated him at any point. I could clear that up. Mm-hmm. I could I could come back from that lunch and set things straight. Hmm. That would be a that would be a lunch worth having. Okay. What annoys us about each other? Salmon. <laughs> I thought you would say my willfulness. That was a term your father used. Yes, when, he did. When I asked him, I think, how did that come up? I don't remember how it came up, but he described you, and I think he was being generous when he <laughs> used the word willful, which I came to understand really meant absolutely immovable when you decide on on something you want or something needs to go a certain way you uh you don't have a lot of wiggle room sometimes it's a good thing 
Sometimes <clears throat> it's it's arrogance. <gasps> <gasps> well, maybe that's an age thing. An age thing? Yeah. No, I just think it's arrogance. I don't. I think <laughs> it. it, it <gasps> you keep gasping. <laughs> I just. Think, I. But again, having been through that time in my life, I, I recall being absolutely, you know, you immovable. You said you were arrogant, Ap- arrogant, and immovable, naive. naive. I believed I had the answers. I knew everything. And look where I, I got you. And uh, but it also led to some tragic dead ends and screw ups. But that's the way I had to go. And no one could tell me differently. I was very set in my ways. That uh, I think that comes with that period of your life, or it certainly came with that period of my life. What is the most fulfilling aspect of your life? Where are these questions coming from? Are these from people that... Mm-hmm. The most fulfilling aspect of my life? Mm-hmm. Well, knowing that my children are self-sufficient and um, leading productive lives and... Uh, you know, happy lives. That that that's uh, that's enormous. That's an enormous thing for a parent. Being in a happy, monogamous, loving relationship. That's nice. Aww. And um, and you're I'm, really I, scoring some points today. I know. I know. Just trying to put the bat on the ball. <laughs> and uh, and I, I obviously I, I I love what I do. And uh, when when I'm you know when I'm doing good work, it's really gratifying. Is there a show out there that you love so much you wish you produced it or wrote it? Breaking Bad. That was gorgeous. And, and most of the things that I really enjoy are, are not comedies. Um, and I don't really have, uh, I have no, no real experience at writing and producing dramas, but uh, that was extraordinary. The Wire was extraordinary. Of course, The Sopranos was an amazing piece of work. Those are things that uh, really uh, I was mesmerized by. Uh, the Crown, what a, mm. what a unbelievable writing and production involved in that. It's just it every every moment of it is is a gem. It's uh, those are the things that really um, I admire. What is the most difficult part of your job? Writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there that's it is. The job. That's the job. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, there's times when it's very hard. There's times when it's very frustrating, and when it's going well, it's glorious. But again, it goes back to what we started with. It's uh, it's about perseverance when it's not going well. Uh, it's also about what it's, it's. I've come to understand when it's time to throw in the towel on a, on something that isn't panning out, and starting over again. Because you're on a timetable in television and you have to make a show, you have to produce the show, you can't call Warner Brothers or CBS or whoever and say, yeah, no show this week, we couldn't come up with anything. That's a phone call, it's not allowed. Mm. So something has to happen. And there are times when, when I've, you know, I've recognized that uh, the most creative decision I can make at that moment is to quit on something that is chewed up probably several days of work and has not borne fruit and start over again and find <laughs> something else. And, uh, and very often when that happens, uh, that something else unfolds very quickly. So the right act sometimes, even though I said perseverance and not quitting and not giving up, and there are times when you have to uh, be willing to say, okay, maybe this is a bad road. Let's try a different path. What's it like being Harvey's dad? I love being Harvey's dad. Um, for starters, I enjoy that we look alike. 
Yes. He's very much my son. Well, I actually said that in my podcast today. Somebody asked me if I think that dogs and their owners look alike. And I felt like it was a leading question. Mm -hmm. Like I, I felt that they were insinuating something because you guys are actually identical. Identical. Well, you're really having a lot of fun with that word identical. You are a doodle. I'm a doodle. Okay. You are a doodle. That's not true, actually, though. I'm I, I am I'm a breed. Mm. I'm I'm not I'm not a hybrid. Um, your parents. My parents are both <laughs> from the same part of the world, and so are their parents and going back many generations. So I, I am not bred in a farm in Utah, which is where he came from. <laughs> But adopt, don't shop, everybody. That is true. And 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 the dogs I've had before, Harvey, <clears throat> have been uh, rescues. And and now is an especially good time to rescue because a lot of the shelters are shutting down and everybody is home. So it's a great time to rescue or a great time to foster. Mm -hmm. That's our PSA for today. Okay. How do you stay grounded? I don't know that I am. I, 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 don't, I don't understand. I don't even know how to respond to that question. You get up and you go to work and you do the next thing that needs to be done. It, there's, no, uh, there's no metaphysics to it. Mom helped me when I was trying not to drink. Was this an unintended boon for viewers? No, it wasn't unintended. Um, Mom was designed as a uh, comedic uh, means by which we could share hope that uh, recovery was possible from alcoholism and drug addiction. That really is the premise of the show, hope. There's the possibility of recovery, and there's a possibility of community, um, camaraderie, friendship, laughter, all the things that come along with recovery. That, that's why we did the show. So it's great to hear that, that it educationally has uh, had that impact. What is one thing that we disagree on? Food. I was going to say temperature. Oh, yes, that, yeah. <laughs> we have very different internal thermometers, we'll say. Yeah. I'm not comfortable talking about my clock. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. How, um, <laughs> do you have a life-changing book recommendation? Life-changing? Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting question. Um, I think The Power of Now. Uh, Eckhart Tolle and um, the uh, the New Earth, the book that followed it, uh, were extraordinary. Uh, and every couple of years, I reread them. I think that's a breathtaking work of of philosophy. I guess is the uh, genre it would fall under. What was the biggest obstacle you overcame? I think the internal obstacle that I wasn't good enough. That's the answer. <laughs> you know that that, that obstacle. That self-generated obstacle that, you know, that, uh, that success is not in the cards for you or for me or for whoever is, uh, that's, that's the one that has to be uh, barreled through, driven through it. it, you, it that's the one that will stop you. It's more powerful than anyone else getting in your way. Do you feel successful? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I've been really fortunate, but I've also worked my ass off for 35 years. So by no means was this an overnight thing. This was decades of 60, 70 hour a week sometimes on, you know, on shows like Roseanne. We, we would regularly work 60 hours a week. 
and uh, go home sometimes when the sun was coming up and then come back four or five hours later and do it again. So, and that went on for, you know, 20 some odd years, uh, those kind of hours till I finally woke up one day and said, I I, I don't want to do this anymore. This has got to be a better way to work. So um, I made it my business when I had the chance to run a show to go home for dinner. Don't, uh, you know, six, seven o'clock, we're done uh, because exhaustion breeds mediocre work. Uh, you know, the, the more tired you are, the more likelihood <laughs> that you're going to find something hilariously funny because you're exhausted. Hmm. And then the next day you come back and realize what you've done is, is awful. But when you're, you know, when you're uh, working under a lot of pressure and you're not getting enough rest and you're not eating right and you're not exercising, then your perception's all off. And that, that creates just more problems down the road. So uh, I, I stopped working those hours about, oh, I don't know, about 15 years ago. How do you stay motivated? How do I stay motivated? Can we be more specific? Well, I can't be more specific for the person who asked the question, but I will put my own spin on it. Mm -hmm. How do you stay motivated now at this point in your career when you've accomplished so much and you don't have to be working? I'm in the business of trying to incite or provoke laughter. Um, when, when you do that uh, and you're working with talented writers uh, who are all remarkably funny in their own right and uh, you, do a lot of, you do a lot of laughing at work, I, I, I'm really fortunate. That's the working environment I'm in. We're trying to write comedy. A lot of laughter happens while you're doing that and it's a, it's a wonderful way to spend your day. Um, it's not onerous at all. The onerous part is, again, um, you know, uh, when you actually have to commit to paper or to uh, binary code, a script, that script has, has, uh, has to have a story, has to have story, uh, has to encompass all the characters in the show. It has to have some reason for being, and it has to be funny. That can be very difficult at times, and that that uh, that that goes again. Everything seems to lead back to that uh, that original area of perseverance. But as far as being motivated is concerned, uh, when you make a television show and, and you've done everything you possibly can to make it a wonderful television show, the best television show you can, given how much time you have and how much money you can spend, then more often than not, there's a feeling of uh, accomplishment, and that's. Uh, that's motivation enough. What were our first impressions of each other? Oh, I'll go first. You go first. Mine was your style. My style. He has the best style. Very cool, casual, effortless. You're effortlessly chic. That's terrific. <laughs> my own sense of myself is I dress like I'm 11. <laughs> 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 T-shirts and jeans and sneakers and, and hoodies. hoodies. I mean, yeah, it's but they're a, all like nice and they're up. tailored really well. <laughs> I see people my age, and uh, you know, the uh, every only thing missing is is a walking cane. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, it's actually one of the side benefits of being a TV writer is uh, the uniform for a television writer is uh, irrelevant. If you if you uh, if you can do the job, uh, no one really cares. If you come to work in a burlap sack or uh, or wrapped in cellophane, just get the job done. Write the script. So uh, 
no suit is required. And I, I, I do like that. I, I do like, although I, I, this is irrelevant, maybe or off tangential, but I was fortunate enough to get to know Stephen Bochco back in the 90s and until he passed away a couple of years ago. <clears throat> and uh, he, he said to me once about writers and the way we dress, and I never forgot it. He said, Chuck, they treat us like children, they being the executives, the network executives and company executives. They treat us like children because we dress like children. <laughs> and uh, I always love that because Stephen dressed like a grown-up. You know, yes, but he, not not with the suit and tie because he didn't have to wear the suit and tie. He was a writer and a producer, so he didn't have to wear the executive suit. But man, he knew how to wear a cashmere sweater. <laughs> so I I watched him very closely. What do you love most about me? What do I love most about you? Mm-hmm. Is this really for the podcast? Yeah, so <laughs> many people ask me that. Really? I'll show you. Yes, they want to know what I love most about you. Yeah. Somebody said, do you love her as much as we do? Oh, man. I don't know how much you do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We don't have to be so literal. <laughs> Just because you're a writer. State the question again. What do you love most about me? What do I love most about you? No you're indomitable. You're dogged in your pursuit of your goals. And I love that. I love that uh, you set goals for yourself. And... Uh, and you just you refuse to be turned away, which I I think is terrific. I think that's I admire that in people in general, but I love it about you. What are your tips for success? <laughs> if, okay, I'll make it specific. Uh-huh. In three okay. words. In three words. In three words, or you can pick three adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quit, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> It's, I, I, I could have done it in two. I don't know why I had to add stupid. <laughs> Best advice for a couple about to get married. <laughs> you know nothing at this point. <laughs> no matter what you think, you know nothing. <laughs> Embrace your ignorance. <laughs> what is your biggest accomplishment to date? My children. Okay. My successful, productive, and uh, and I think within the boundaries of reality, uh, happy children, and, gr- and they're grown ups. You know, they're they're adults, and uh, I uh, I admire what they're both doing. What would you tell your younger self? It'll work out. Don't give up. Don't quit, stupid. Don't quit, stupid. <laughs> yep. See, there you go. Did you ever get advice that in hindsight was completely wrong? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah, but do you have an example? Oh, God. Advice that was completely wrong. Oh, yeah, actually. um, About uh, 35 years ago. um, Is that right? 30? Yeah, about 35 years ago. I was told that I couldn't get into primetime television. It was a small, closed boys group, and you couldn't get in unless you knew somebody. And uh, I chose not to believe that person because to believe them would have meant that I would have quit trying to get into that little club. I, I just kept telling myself that if I could do the job and do it better, just even a little better, not, not you know, not uh, some remarkable 
reinvention of the medium, but just do do what was required, but do it a little bit better than I'd find a home somewhere. I'd find a job. I can exchange value for value. My father was a, uh, a great believer in work and that uh, if someone was paying you a dollar for your work, then you had to give them back at least a dollar and a penny. At least they had to make more money in exchange for giving you money. So if someone is going to pay me to write a sitcom, produce a sitcom, and it pays really well, look it up, uh, <laughs> then I was never comfortable with receiving that money unless I knew the company, whether it be Warner Brothers or I've worked uh, for the Carsey Warner Company and I worked for Fox back in the 90s. Um, I was never comfortable with that exchange unless I made them money more money than they were paying me. Then the exchange was fair and I was, I, I had earned my uh, salary. How do you determine what philanthropic ventures you want to take? That's a really personal thing. I think for everybody, that's, that's the answer to that's going to be different. What's meaningful to you? Where do you think you can make an impact? Where do you think you can make a difference? Where do you think your philanthropy could most be utilized. I've chosen to, to do the things I do in Southern California so I can see and participate rather than, uh, than simply write a check and send it off to some uh, charity and then hope it has some impact. I, I, like to, I like to work close to home, but that's just me. I mean, you know, people, people do things you know, for Central Africa that are important and need to be done. And uh, maybe they get on a plane and go there and see it getting done. But I, I've just chosen to work locally. And that 26-hour flight uh, doesn't really, didn't really work for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst job you ever had? The worst job I ever had was probably uh, a busboy at IHOP. Because uh, you're cleaning up. But free pancakes. Ugh, I didn't eat pancakes <laughs> for 20 years after that job. Wow. I, I couldn't even... I couldn't even look at them because you're constantly cleaning up children's vomit. Uh. And uh, because kids eat that stuff, eat it really fast. It's really <laughs> sweet. And the busboy gets called when it gets regurgitated. Um, I mean, I've, I've done physically more demanding jobs than that. Um, you know, I've been a, a window cleaner in a, in a shopping mall and I've, I've worked with asphalt, hot asphalt on a road crew. Uh, you know, there's, Jobs that were exhausting physically, but uh, that was, I don't know why, but that one was disgusting. <laughs> Just oh, ruined pancakes forever. Not ever. I, I, I eventually came back to pancakes, thankfully. Yes, you have. For my gut. With a vengeance. For my gut health. <laughs> yes. What has been your biggest challenge in the entertainment industry? Uh, again, it'd be in, internally, it would be managing my own emotions. Managing my own response to frustration and uh, disappointment. And um, one of the things that happens to you as you climb up the ladder in television as a writer is they make you a producer. And suddenly you're not simply writing a script, you're having to deal with other people. And the skills of working with other people, uh, they, I didn't have them. I had to learn them on the job. You know, you become a chaplain at times. People come to you with their personal problems and things, and 
and you want to say, hang on a second, um, I'm a mediocre guitar player who got really lucky. I don't think I'm in any position to help you here. But, uh, but that does become part of the job in order to, uh, to make a television show. You have to become collaborative, and that's a collaborating is something you learn how to do. I don't think it's, it certainly wasn't instinctive to me. I had to learn how to do it. And I, I suppose uh, people I admired when I was coming up, I watched them. The, the ones who succeeded the most were the most collaborative, were the ones who were willing to say, help. Um, I can't do this alone. And uh, so I, that was a big lesson for me. Asking for help, surrounding yourself with people that were smarter and funnier and more talented is uh, the greatest gift you can give yourself if you're in the creative fields, I think, is to, uh, to not work in a vacuum. Trust yourself, but at the same time, if you have access to smart people, use them. Okay, I'll give you one more. Thank you. <laughs> What's the biggest lesson you've learned from your biggest failure? Oh, well, I, I don't think this is groundbreaking information, but uh, you learn, I've learned, uh, as much or more from failure than I have from from success. Success can breed arrogance and 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 uh, some in the hubris that I know I know how this works and and um, and that in itself leads to failure. If you've had some success and then you know you you believe that suddenly you have some golden touch, you will fail. I certainly have from pride. Actually, the first of the seven deadly sins, and it's. First, for a reason, it leads catastrophically to failure because it blinds you as to what's really going on. You don't really see accurately when you're full of yourself. Mm. And I have failed. Thankfully, my failures generally don't get on television. They're so bad, they never even get that far. So my failures are somewhat private, which I'm grateful for. (laughs) There are many scripts I've written that uh, were deemed... uh, unworthy of even being produced. And, uh, and I've also written and produced pilots that were uh, considered best used as landfill or uh, doorstops. And uh, these are the jokes, folks. Um, and, uh, and again, looking back on them, it was correct that they didn't go forward. They weren't good. They weren't well-conceived. Um, and they were powerful lessons. Once the pain of, of the failure subsides, you can take from that some vital information as to how to go forward and be better. Not necessarily succeed, but how to be better. You know, uh, and also you can you can learn from other people's failures can be equally uh, illuminating. You don't have to fall on your own spike every time. You can actually look around and see how other people are doing and see what works and see what doesn't. So yeah. I don't have any regrets about the failures, though. I think that's an important point for people that are, that are pursuing anything in the creative fields. All the failures were necessary. Every one of them, every dumbass thing I've done um, has value when you look back at it in that uh, I had to do that to get to where I am. I had to fall down that flight of steps to get to where I had enough insight to do the next thing that may have been better. And trust the process. And trust the process, which is hard to do because when you're in the middle of it and you're failing, it just hurts. And um, a year, two years, one month, six months, whatever time afterwards, that becomes gold. That experience becomes invaluable. It becomes precious. It becomes something to write about. You're better for it. 
having survived it, and if you don't become bitter and angry and and um, just you know uh, uh, unwilling to move forward because the world has done you wrong, that failure is uh, is a powerful asset in what you do next. Well, that is an inspiring note to end on. I want to end on inspiring notes. You are, <laughs> you lived up to my expectations. Just thought you should know. Well, I'm very <laughs> happy that you're happy. <laughs> Thank I you will so much life. for coming on. Maybe, maybe you can come back in a year. Uh, yeah, let's see. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. I know that there has been a lot of curiosity and judgment around our relationship from people who don't know us, and hopefully that gave you a peek inside and you can see that we are just a regular couple. My husband always says that the eye is ageless, and it's something that I'm beginning to understand because... I mean, I'm still young. I'm in my early 30s, but I feel like I'm 20. And every year that passes, I almost feel a little bit younger, which is bizarre. But he feels young too. So haters gonna hate, but that's just because they're miserable. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It goes a long way and I read and appreciate every single one of them. So thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next week.